Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their travel trailer, which they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. I can't believe it's already spring here in the Northern Hemisphere yet again. A big slice of my bread and butter is centered around taxes and bookkeeping, so it's a big sign of spring's arrival in my world when the tax deadline begins to loom. The last few years, that particular career has been interesting, as the government's giving us additions, subtractions, and extensions, so tax season keeps going on and on and on. All of the accounting people lately have been like groundhogs, where on April 15th we come out of the hole into the light and then realize we've been extended again, so we all go back into the dark to do another six months of tax returns. But there are some very bright and cheery spots to indicate spring has arrived, and another one of those is upon us now. We are in chick season yet again. Now, you might be a poultry fancier, or a backyard chicken keeper, or just one of those people that loves to run around and hunt Easter eggs. But, no matter what, baby chickens are a marvel. For the first few weeks of life, they're little bundles of curiosity and joy, zipping about doing nothing but eating, pooping, investigating the world, and falling asleep in the middle of everything, about 12 times a day. Funniest thing ever, if you've ever seen the sleeping thing, it's just like you hit them with a trank dart, I promise. But in honor of all that vim and vigor representative in the chicken corner of the poultry world, and because it's agricultural bookworm time again, for this week's episode, we're reading from a book with many contributors, but it's edited by a guy named Henry P. Schwab. Mr. Schwab did books and magazines, and I'm sure many other things, but no matter what, everything I've found so far with his name on it pertains to the feathered universe. Today's excerpt is from a now-public-domain book called Everybody's Standard Poultry Guide, 2nd Edition, Volume 1. It was published in 1919 by Everybody's Poultry Magazine Publishing Company in Hanover, Pennsylvania. The copy I have in my hand was a bit of a romantic present for my hubby because he knows I love old books. Old books on agricultural topics? Well, I won't share any more with you in the interest of preventing too much information. But... He is a lovely man, though. For all of you rolling your eyes out there, just know that I've heard more than one story in the last few years of couples falling in love over a sheep purchase, and some of you brought sacks of grain instead of flowers when you were courting, so no judging on my marital book situation, if you'd be so kind. This book is a beautiful thing, though. The pages are so old, they have a buff color that looks like they've been dipped in tea, and every time I turn a page, it emits that really great old bookstore smell. The language is slightly formal, but not so much that I can't relate to it. It's just enough to easily be able to imagine a weary farmer sitting in the light of an oil lamp, writing out a draft on an old beat-up farm-style kitchen table. The words written here are over a hundred years old, and a few things have very much changed since they were written. But it's truly amazing how many of the basic things in farm life are very, very much the same. The passage we're going to read is from a chapter called Babes in Chickland, 
written by Willard C. Thompson. From the way it's written, I believe it's more directed toward poultry keepers meeting the demand for the rise in farming on a larger scale at that time. Not full-tilt industrial farming yet, but it's getting there, 1919 style. The Model T Ford, or Tin Lizzie, would have been the car this farmer might have taken to go to market. Well, okay, maybe if he was wealthy and owned the biggest poultry farm in Ohio. Other than that, it was probably just old Bessie in the wagon. We hope you enjoy going back to the past with this week's reading from Everybody's Standard Poultry Guide, edited by H.P. Schwab. Chapter 19, Babes in Chickland, by Willard C. Thompson. To the average American farmer who's endowed with an absorbing love for his work, who believes that in it there is honor, and that over which he may justly be proud, and who is interested in watching nature grow and develop, there is no more attractive labor than that which is created in the care of young animals and birds. A man has no right to be called a farmer if he cannot see interest in the young lambs that gamble about in the sunshine in the sheepyard, in the little white pigs that frolic in the straw, in the calves that awkwardly run around the confines of their pen, and in the little chicks that fly to the call of the mother hen or watch for the feeder from the brooder runs. Young life has a magnetism that draws and commands attention. This magnetism compels interest. For this reason, many farmers spend much of their time in the care of the young things on their farms. Close watch over the young brings a realization of why they need particular attention. They are all just starting to live. Their little bodies have not yet been built up to the point where they can withstand environmental conditions. Oftentimes, the right kind of care is not given them because the farmer does not understand just what to do. And in such cases, a moment taken to consider the question is time well invested. I started out to tell a true story of little chicks that happened to find themselves on a modern American farm. This farm is a general stock farm, where each spring there are hundreds of young lives brought forth, some in the flocks of sheep, some in the herds of swine and cattle, but far more in the poultry pens. The manager of the farm has been raising chicks for many years, and through those years he has been learning from real experience some of the difficulties that lay across the path of his babes in chickland on their way to maturity. Every man that is learning his livelihood on the farm, and a part of it at least, by raising poultry for meat and eggs, should read the story of the chicks on this farm with critical interest. Last spring, these particular little chickens numbered something over 4,000. They were strong, vigorous, healthy Rhode Island Reds. When they were just beginning to liven up after a couple of days under the hovers, they resembled tiny balls of buff or yellowish fur. Every chick was up and coming. None stayed by themselves in a sleepy, sulky attitude. What was the great secret of the vitality of these chicks? All chicks are not that way. In too many flocks, there is a large percentage of weak individuals that not only mar the beauty of the entire flock in every stage of their growth, but ruin the profits of the season's effort. Strength is the result of breeding. The successful raising of chicks must begin back several generations before the chicks are hatched. Never can and never will mongrel stock produce young that are uniform and even in any characteristic. 
never can and never will any kind of stock produce desirable offsprings if no attention is paid to the mating of the breeders. In this case, the low percentage of poor chicks was due in large part to the care with which the farmer has always selected the best birds in his flock for the breeding pen. He has saved eggs from his regular laying flock for almost ten years now, not since he learned his lesson. Every winter he watches his laying flocks closely. He keeps his eye on the pullets that perform the biggest stunts in egg laying. When they are in their second winter, he goes into the pens and selects the best of them and removes them from the laying flock and places them in a special pen where they are mated with a splendid male. He picks out the big, well-matured hens that have been laying a good number of eggs. He selects the hens that are uniform in size, that have the shape of body that is most desired in a typical Rhode Island red, and that are of an even red color. He has learned that like does produce like, and that if he wants good birds, he must have good breeders. Birds such as he puts into these breeding pens have never suffered from disease and are in strong, vigorous health. This is his first precaution against trouble with the chicks in the first few days out of the shell. These breeding birds are housed in small pens, from 10 to 15 or 20 birds being kept together. A part of his breeding pens consists of special colony houses about 6 by 8 feet in size of the shed and open front type. The rest of the pens are divisions of what used to be a regular laying house. These breeders are not forced during the winter for heavy production, but are allowed to store up energy for the eggs at the hatching season. This rest has ensured a large percentage of fertile, strong eggs. In the latter part of January and February, the business of the season starts in dead earnest. On the very cold days when the mercury has fallen to zero and below the gathering of eggs from the breeding pens is very punctual. Two or three trips are made to the pens during the morning and two in the afternoon. A covered basket with a thick cloth in the bottom of it is used to carry the eggs into the house. This is to prevent the chilling or freezing of eggs that are to be placed in the incubators. Chilled eggs nearly always result in dead germs that never hatch or in weak chicks that do not add anything to the flock. When the eggs are in the house, they are carefully spread out on tables or shelves in a room that has a temperature of about 65 degrees. In a room of this kind, they are not subjected to a temperature low enough to chill them or high enough to start their development. They are turned each day in order to prevent the yolk from settling or sticking to one side of the shell. It is planned not to have to keep hatching eggs for more than two weeks after they're laid, before they're placed in the incubator. The fresher the eggs, the stronger the germs will be, and the better and more vigorous will the chicks hatch out. Another selection takes place when the incubators are running at constant temperature and are ready for the eggs. Only the smooth, large eggs are placed in the machine. Double-yoked, misshapen, extra-long, bullet-shaped, or soft-shelled eggs are all culled out and used in the kitchen. When the trays are finely filled, they contain only uniform eggs, alike in size and shape, and a light reddish-brown in color. All this care and selection takes little time and is nothing more than the application of the finest form of common sense. 
The artificial incubators have practically taken the place of the mother hen on this farm, mainly because so large a number of chicks are to be raised each year that hatching with mother hens would be a long and tedious effort. For the first few years of his incubator experience, the farmer ran the incubator in the living room of his house. The good-looking incubator did not mar the appearance of the room and was extremely handy for his wife to look after during the day when his attention was called to the barns. When he became persuaded that with a little care the poultry game was a winning one for him, it was necessary to buy two or three other machines. He wanted to hatch his chicks in March in order that they might become fully matured and ready to lay eggs when the next winter set in. As long as he had but one machine, he was forced to have a lot of chicks of different ages. Finally, he fitted up a room in the cellar in which he now operates four standard makes of incubators. This room was dry and could be well ventilated, although it was not very light. He kept it at about 65 degrees during the time that the machines were in operation and tried in every way to maintain uniform conditions in the room. One day he made the remark that in the chicken-raising game, uniformity was one of the most important items in every part and he struck the nail on the head then, as he usually has done. It was a bitterly cold day along the second week of March last spring that over 800 of the bright, downy little reds were chirping and working their way toward the glass front of the incubator, ready to be taken to the brooder. The front of the machine had been covered with a newspaper, thus excluding the greater part of the light from the incubator chamber. As a result of this, the chicks had slept for the first twelve hours out of the eggs, as nature intended that they should. They had dried and fluffed out perfectly, and were upon their feet, strong and vigorous. When the man was ready to move the chicks, he brought another covered basket, which was lined with a soft woolen cloth that had been warmed. He then warmed his hands and opened the door of the machine. Each chick was very carefully picked up and placed in the basket. He was careful not to take too many at one trip. He had learned in earlier years that chilling the tiny little chick in the transfer from incubator to the brooder had meant the sealing of its death warrant. The chicks were placed under the hover of the brooder in the long brooder house, as the coal-burning stoves were not used until a little later in the season when the next brood of chicks were hatched. The lamps that furnished the heat for the separate brooders had been very carefully cleaned, furnished with new wicks, and gotten into perfect running order two days before the chicks were taken from the incubator. The lamp was carefully trimmed and filled each day in the same manner as the lamps of the incubator had been trimmed and filled. Constant temperature had been obtained for twelve hours prior to the coming of the chicks. All this attention was found necessary if chicks were to be brooded artificially with any degree of success. Temperature and feed are the two governing factors in the management of chicks in an artificial brooder. Continued high temperature killed several hundred chicks on this farm several years ago. Faulty lamps were responsible for a lack of even temperature and thus took a few hundred more. Those losses led him to adopt a system of brooder temperature management that has been most satisfactory. He used it last spring, with the 800 chicks referred to above, and his loss was under 8%. The first two days, the temperature stood at 100 degrees under the hover, 
and it gradually dropped until, at the end of the first week, it was running at 98. During the second week, it gradually dropped 2 degrees, and at the end of the third week, it was running around 92. During the fourth and fifth weeks, the drop was made to about 85. Then, the chicks were hardened and were able to get along with little or no artificial heat. As they grew, their bodies generated enough heat to keep them comfortable when they roosted together. Many brooder chicks get so much artificial heat that they are not toughened when they are put out on the range, and the result invariably is that they get colds and many of them die from exposure. The system of gradually getting them accustomed to lower temperature is practical and commendable. The first food that these little Rhode Island Reds received was not given them until they had been in the brooder for 24 hours, making them something over 48 hours of age before they were fed for the first time. In his early experience with chicks, he had lost many because he had not waited until they were at least two days old before feeding them. Nature has supplied enough food in the body of the chick in the form of the yolk sac to last the chick for several days. If this is not used up, it will decay and cause poisoning and consequent death. The first food was easily seen and attracted the eye of the chick. That was fine, chick size. They needed this to take the place of the teeth that other animals have. Then they found a small basin of sour skim milk in the run just outside the hover. They walked up to this basin rather hesitatingly and gave one or two picks at the material. It tasted good. Soon a number of them were trying the white food in each brooder pen, and there were about 100 chicks in each run. The farmer had been careful not to overcrowd them. After a few hours, they were fed fine rolled oats, which was an excellent feed. This was varied with finely chopped eggs that had been hard-boiled. The eggs were the infertiles that had been cuddled out of the incubator on the seventh day of incubation. Along with this food was pure water. It was always kept pure, and the pan was cleaned out frequently in order to ensure absolute cleanliness. The chicks were given free access to sour skim milk and fresh water, for the farmer realized that these two things were of vital importance to the constant growth of his flock. The general way in which he managed his chicks with regard to feed was simple and easy and practical and common sense. After the third day, he started feeding a fine grain ration about five times a day. He did this in order to keep them always a little hungry. A small amount of feed often is much better than a large amount of feed fed at long intervals. This grain mixture was composed of fine cracked corn, 20 pounds, fine cracked wheat, 25 pounds, pinhead oats, 20 pounds, fine charcoal, 3 pounds, fine grit, 3 pounds. This dry grain ration was supplemented with a small amount of hard-boiled egg and sprouted oats. The latter was given as a source of succulent, juicy food. In one end of the brooder house, there is a small closet in which there are racks on which the trays filled with oats are always kept sprouting. After the seventh day, wheat bran was placed in small, clean hoppers. For the first few days, the hopper was not left in the pen, but for a few hours. 
At the third week, a regular dry mash was placed in the hoppers instead of bran. It was made up of wheat bran, ten pounds, cornmeal, five pounds, rolled oats, three pounds, meat scraps, one pound, bone meal, one pound. This scheme of feeding together with the gradual decreasing of brooder temperatures developed chicks that were uniform and strong and healthy. After the sixth week, the chicks were carefully sorted. The pullets being placed on a fine, large range, which was in a fruit orchard, and the crockerels were penned up and fed specially for broilers. The broilers, at about nine weeks, brought top market prices, and they were fine. The pullets were housed at night in colony houses and allowed the freedom of the whole orchard during the summer days. In the fall, they were developed into splendid birds for the winter laying pens. The later lots of chicks fared much the same as did these eight hundreds, except that some were brooded and the coal-burning brooders. They turned out well, but as yet, that type of brooder is still an experiment on this particular farm. This spring, larger preparations than ever were made for the babes in chickland. Probably the chicks this year will be better than ever, for the breeding pens this winter have been even finer than before. The chicks on every farm can be better than ever when all our farmers awaken to the realization of the importance of the little things that made for the success of the birds on chickland. If you'd like to read more of Everybody's Standard Poultry Guide, or more of the Henry P. Schwab books, you can find them on archive.org, a free site with many public domain materials. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going, and please ask your friends to join us. Please also feel free to post any comments or questions to our social media sites. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Backyard Green Films. Thanks again for listening. We would like to thank you for listening to this month's Agriculture Bookworm. Please join us next week for another adventure from the road. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, All Rights Reserved. Copyright 2022.